What then to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a year that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your denunciation of tyrants, brass, fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. The words of Frederick Douglass, Rochester, New York, July 5th, 1852, our nation's 76th anniversary. We know that the first people brought from Africa in chains arrived here in 1619. Slavery remained legal in this land through the signing of the Declaration of Independence until the Constitution was amended for the 13th time in 1865. For 246 years, slavery was legal on this land, this land where we now sit. Families ripped apart bought and sold and worked to death as a matter of policy 246 years. It has only been outlawed for 158 years. For 61% of the history of this land of the free, chattel slavery was legal here. That infamous system is no longer possible. So are we free now as we celebrate our nation's 247th anniversary this Tuesday? There are 430 million guns for 335 million people. That's five guns for every family of four. 20 million of them are AR-15s. Numbers are hard to keep in your head. So here's one way to remember that. Through this whole wide world, we've got 4% of the population and 40% of the guns. Our own Virginia ranks number three in the nation for issued gun licenses, 423,000. That's about 5%. Doesn't sound like much, but it's one in 20 people. The last time you were at Costco, were there more than 20 people there? What do people buy them for? Christine Embo, the Washington Post columnist, went down to the nation's gun show, as it's called. It happens several times a year in Chantilly. It's not far from uh, in the NRA headquarters. And she asked people what they buy guns for. Protection is the overwhelming response. Gun violence is the leading cause of death for children and young people, teenagers in the US. But people said they needed guns to keep themselves safe. Safe from what, she asked. Most couldn't answer, they simply had a feeling. Yes, and that feeling is fear. And the police are apparently more afraid of us than we are of them. Slavery has been replaced by mass incarceration, voting's getting harder, ex-president under indictment, child labor. I thought we'd taken care of that with Dickens. And the Supreme Court's gone rogue. Rights we've taken for granted for decades have been yanked out from under us this week. And here's something I learned a few weeks ago. There are more three-car garages than one-bedroom apartments built in this country. 
which wouldn't be news to thousands of people living in tents on the streets of LA. For every new unit of building, it turns out there's a minimum amount of space mandated for parking, even if the people who are going to live there can't afford cars. It's blighting the land and curtailing affordable housing. And then there's climate change. What then to any of us is our 4th of July in 2023? This is not the home of the brave. It's the home of the terrified, the anxious, and the depressed. I know nobody wants to hear this, but I've heard enough comments here about wanting to stop listening to the news. And we've dropped enough stones Sunday after Sunday, and this Sunday once again, for yet another mass shooting. It's on our minds. Not talking about it isn't going to make us forget it. We're troubled and we're worried about our kids' future, the futures when they walk out the door and their futures in 50 years. And there's a problem with living your life in fear. A lovely movie from 1992 called Strictly Ballroom eliminates that problem, illuminates that problem. In it, the young heroine is trying to get the handsome star dancer to take her on as a partner. Although they're in Australia, she's from a Spanish family, but he doesn't know that. He won't dance with her, he tells her, because she, doesn't, she isn't good enough. She doesn't have his years of experience. He's about 21, but she's not buying that. She says, you're scared. You're just really scared to give someone else a go because you know, you're afraid they may be better than you are. You're gutless. Vivir con miedo es como vivir a medias. Later on, when they've worked some things out, he asked her what that meant. And she says, to live in fear is a life half lived. We don't want to live half a life. We didn't fight and die at Valley Forge in Gettysburg to live up, end up living half a life. The gospels have Jesus say, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So how on this 4th of July, 2023, do we get abundant life? In the name of freedom, the United States defined itself by our willingness to fight and die to cut ourselves off, to become separate. We thought we knew how to get free, just keep cutting off the parts that are getting in the way, form a smaller, more circumscribed unity. Sure, we were happy to bring the folks in to grow the cotton, lay the railroads, dig the mines, build the cities, keep the houses clean, and maybe they thought that made them Americans too. But our history is made up of the long, bloody struggles to keep disabuse each succeeding group of the notion that they belonged. We saved ourselves by the skin of our teeth in 1865, and then in 1896, the Supreme Court ruled that separate was equal. What a bitter laugh that turned out to be. And now perhaps we're reaching a logical conclusion. It's every man for himself. We're finally on our own. Calling the police seems worse than pointless. Congress is moribund. One way or the other, the government's coming for us. My family and I are my only obligations. How's that working? Do we have abundant life? Are we free yet? On the contrary, the long history of the world and the wisdom of sages agree on the apparent paradox that we will be free only when we recognize our unity with everything else on earth. Because freedom to move, freedom to grow, freedom to become what we can become and what this earth could be 
are most fully possible when we're not constrained and we're not using our energy and resources to constrain other people. Only then are we able to realize that we're not limited to the configuration of components with which each of us is born. As humans, we have a choice. Freedom's just another word for adaptability. And we are among the most adaptable objects on earth. We aren't obligate carnivores or herbivores. We can eat just about anything we have to. We walk upright so we can see a long distance. We have opposable thumbs. We have a highly developed brain. And two of the things that come out of that are that we're fast learners and we can imagine alternatives. The price we pay for these brains is that we're responsible for what we do. If you've got cats or dogs or horses or chickens at home, you know, they just do what they do. We envy them their lack of sleepless nights. We don't have that luxury. That's why the existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said in the idiom of his time, man is condemned to be free. It's frightening, exhausting, and frustrating, but it's up to each of us to give our own lives meaning. And over and over again, it's clear that things come out better when we work together. And it turns out there is an example of a deeply intertwined mutual aid system all around us if we have the wit to see it. Two recent books, The Secret Life of Trees and Entangled Life, document the astonishingly complex mutual support system among plants, trees, and fungi. They have enormous underground networks of fungal threads and tree roots through which they transfer food and medications to each other. They care for the sick. They manage childcare. They make tactical decisions about supplying defensive aid to trees under threat from insects and pollution or growing where the soil is not as fertile. In other words, the haves don't hoard. They redistribute the wealth and the whole population prospers. It's called, by humans, the Wood Wide Web, and it's been going on for 400 million years, as much as 90% of all land plants participating. In fact, researchers are now investigating the hypothesis that it's not competition, but symbiosis that is the main driver of evolution. One researcher is cited as saying, it doesn't make evolutionary sense for trees to behave like resource-grabbing individualists. They live longest and reproduce most successfully in a healthy, stable forest. That's why they've evolved to help their neighbors, just like our covenant. And the suspicion that we are all connected is pretty widespread among humans. We're just not used to thinking about how deep it is. Some, thinks it, some think it's limited to family or to some political jurisdiction or to people who think the same way we do about politics or sports or that connection really means control. Putin, for instance, doesn't understand the nature of his connection to the people of Ukraine. That comes about because we forget where we are in the scheme of things. The universe is a big place. It's packed with a lot of stuff. We human earthlings are somewhere in the middle between vanishingly tiny and unimaginably enormous, probably on the smallish side. And all our information comes from our five sensory organs, ears, eyes, nose, mouth, and skin, which are evolved to operate on the macro scale where we live our daily lives. 
and where we seem to be packed into this hard-bound physical form. So we have to bear in mind that we see every situation through our own perspective. We can't help it, and it's hard to overcome. We appear separate, and we can't tell what each other's thinking yet. It takes less time and energy to assume that the data from our sense receptors are reality instead of just the view from here. But maintaining perspective is the obligation we have. There's a little exercise we could try to widen our perspective. <clears throat> Imagine, if you will, that you're at your feet. There is a small chest with a lid. Into that chest, we can put things that belong to us and keep them safe for a while. So first, let's take a breath. And then let's start putting things safely into the chest. Close your eyes if it helps. First, our self-definitions. Are you a mother? a father, a sister, a brother, a spouse, a friend, a grandparent, a female, a male, something else, whatever you are, take those things off and put them in the chest. Are you a cook, a writer, a scientist, a landscaper, a student, a lawyer, a therapist, a musician, a truck driver, a tennis player, an IT professional, a veterinarian, a carpenter, an artist, a gardener, a hiker, an actor, any of a thousand other things, all those things you think of yourself as, put them all into the chest. Now put in all your accomplishments, the tasks you checked off this week, the awards you've won, the offices you held, your degrees, your promotions, the time you made it through your root canal, the victories no one else knows about, now your plans. What are you gonna do after the service? What's for dinner? What's on the calendar this week? Are you going somewhere for vacation? All into the chest. Your expectations about what somebody or other is gonna think of you the next time they see you, your health, what you're gonna do after you graduate, where you're gonna be in five years, all into the chest and close the lid. Now just sit and be a physical body, a breathing human being, just like all the humans beside you and in front of you and behind you, all of us fellow human beings sitting in chairs at UUCL. Now go more basic, just a living creature like the ones beside you and outside in the trees and crawling on the ground, driving by in cars, over the animal park, waiting at home, some with hair, some with fur, some with feathers, some with scales, just a creature moving around on earth. Now even more basic, just an object on the earth, sitting on another object within a bigger object, surrounded by objects made of metal and stone and plastic and wood and glass. Now go down through your tissues and your cells and your molecules to your atoms, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen. We're just like the trees, the soil, and Goose Creek, and the sun. Each one of us, billions of billions 
of billions of clouds of electrons hazing around protons and neutrons. And we're exchanging them all the time. Every time we shake hands, pat the dog, hug, dig the garden, type an entry on the library keyboard that thousands of other hands have touched, hand our credit card to someone and take it back again, come into this building and sit on a chair other people have sat in. Over the past three years, didn't we learn we can't live for even a minute without being closely physically connected to everyone around us, even if we don't know they're there? The question is how we handle that connection. Every object we encounter is a temporary consolidation of energy into an arrangement of atoms uniquely shaped and galvanized to act. The possible combinations are apparently nearly infinite from fathoms deep in the ocean to the craters of volcanoes. Whether you're a human or a sniffer dog or a snapping turtle or an octopus, a maple tree, an upholstered chair, a skyscraper, a cornfield, a yellow dwarf star like our sun. Each of us has one brief shining moment until we are scattered back into the infinite. It's up to each of us to take our particular collection of atoms in all their specific organizational complexity and live that moment, remembering constantly that everyone we encounter human, non-human, animate, inanimate, at least inanimate to us, is likewise a collection of atoms living its moment with the configuration it's been given. We said we wanted freedom in this country. We fought for it, we threw tea in the harbor for it, we died for it, and we've been finding out ever since that it means much more than we originally thought. We thought we could get freedom by separating ourselves and going it alone, but the law of unintended consequences never stops. And we are forced as honest human beings to burrow down to the logical conclusion of our grand idea. We are simultaneously absolutely unique and exactly the same. We can only make this world what it ought to be when we realize that because we are the same, we are all equal. And because we are unique, each one of us deserves to be free. That news we're also depressed about is a daily demonstration of how hard it is to learn that lesson, how fiercely people struggle for what they think is control. We can look at the fear in our own souls and ask ourselves how we are being called to live even though we are afraid. It doesn't make evolutionary sense for us to behave like resource-grabbing individualists. That's why every Sunday we renew our covenant to help our neighbor. If you're a parent, you're very familiar with that never-ending tightrope between granting freedom and ensuring well-being, but we all have that responsibility in every encounter. The plants figured it out long ago. We are trying to follow their example. Jean-Paul Sartre said something else too, something shocking. Again, in the idiom of his time, World War II, during which he spent nine months as a POW in Nazi-occupied France, he said, there are two ways to go to the gas chamber, free 
and not free. And there are two ways to live in a United States full of guns and mass slaughter and bad news. Remember that July 4th doesn't commemorate war and death. It commemorates a conviction, despite all the uncertainty and difficulties they knew were coming, that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free. We are all free and we are all equal and fear never ends, but we don't have to live half a life because we are together and because each of us can choose every day, no matter what else is going on, we can have life and have it more abundantly if we choose it. That is what we can celebrate on Tuesday. Happy 4th of July. May it be so.